0: We're going to be in prophetic books. We're not going to focus really on the prophecies, okay, or the stories. Most of us remember the stories in the book of Daniel from Sunday school and such. So, you know, we don't need to cover those. Uh, we will see a lot of the prophecies being fulfilled in the very things that we're reading as we look at history. So, we're not really going to focus on those kind of things. What we're going to focus on is the presence and the power of God in the world and the things that are going on in the world and in our own personal lives. We see him working and engaging on the global scale. We see him engaging on the personal scale, interacting with people on an individual basis. I remember when I was younger, there was a song out that got really popular and it was God is watching us from a distance. Anybody remember that song? Yay? No? Wow. Okay. All right. So maybe not that popular or or, or whatnot, but um, it was really, really big when I was in high school. And the thing that I always, many of the things I disliked about the song, it wasn't a Christian song, but God isn't watching us from a distance. He's here and now, and he's focused on us and what's going on, and he's in control of it all. So in the book of Daniel, we're going to read just little bits and pieces. The first thing that I want us to consider is what we know about Daniel, okay? Daniel was a man, as was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were committed to the Lord And they were uncompromising in their walk with the Lord, okay? This is critical for everybody, every believer. We need to be uncompromising and committed to the Lord. We live in a time where it's really crazy. And there's a lot of people that are wavering. There's a lot of people pursuing uh, pastors and teachers and teachings that tickle the ear, make you feel good, but aren't the word of God, aren't the things of God. We want to stay committed. It's really easy to get rattled and shaken. We're going to see that later on in the book of Haggai, the book of Ezra, the book of Zechariah. We need to stay committed. Enough said there. So the first thing that we're going to look at is when Nebuchadnezzar receives a vision from God, God is actually giving his plans to this pagan king that he is using at the time. And you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar has this vision of a statue, head of gold, torso or shoulders and arms of silver, torso and thighs of bronze, and then the feet of clay mixed with iron. Okay, And then a stone that is cut with uh, hands that are not man's hands, comes, wipes it all out, and spreads all over the earth, and that's the messianic kingdom. So he has this vision, he doesn't know what it is. And he says to the magicians and the astrologers and all, okay, I want you not only to tell me what the vision means, but I want you to tell me what the vision is. And they're freaking out, and they're saying, nobody can do that. No king has ever asked that of his magicians and his soothsayers and prophets. We, we can't do that. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, if you don't do it, I'll kill you. So how's that for a little bit of pressure at the workplace, okay? So that's the decree. And look at their response. This is chapter 2, verse 11. The wise men say, the thing that the king asks is difficult... And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Okay? Now, what they're going to find out real quick is there is a God who does reveal, and he does dwell with us. Okay? That's his heart. We saw it right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, God living amongst Adam and Eve in the garden. They took walks together, they talked, they interacted. It was relational, all right? We see it all the way through Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the millennial reign, and heaven. It's all about having a relationship with the Lord. So the soldiers are sent out to kill the wise men and such. And the word comes to Daniel, and they say, hey, give us a moment, you know, we'll pray about it, and we'll seek the Lord. Uh, And in chapter uh, 2, verse 20, this is going to be borne out through everything else that we're going to look at this morning. Daniel's response after he receives the vision and the interpretation, he says in verse 20, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known, uh, made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. So as Daniel is praying and worshiping the Lord, he's bringing out the fact that God is in control of everything. And that is going to bear out through everything that we're going to look at this morning. If you go over to verse 27, he's standing before Nebuchadnezzar now. And it says, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. If you go down to verse 30, but as for me, this mystery... "...has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind." So Daniel comes to him and says, Okay, you need to understand this is not me. There is a God in heaven who has revealed this to you, and he's letting you know what's going to happen. He's laying out his plans before Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar receives another vision. Okay, we're not gonna delve into it, but this is the one where he receives the vision of a tree that is cut down and a band is put around it, and then after a time, it's basically allowed to grow again. Daniel says, This is you. You need to repent of your pride and your arrogance and turn to the Lord for mercy. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen. So down in chapter 4, verse 17, as Daniel is talking to Nebuchadnezzar and has given him this, uh, this answer, okay, or is giving him one, he says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, And listen to this. This is why this was given. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills and sets over it the lowliest of men. So as God is doing this and giving these prophecies of what's to happen, he is letting Nebuchadnezzar know, he's letting the people know, he's letting Israel know that there is one God who is sovereign over all things and as they're getting ready to go into a very crazy time in human history, as empires rise and fall and kings rise and fall and, the, uh, and Jesus is getting ready to come a few uh, centuries down the road, God's giving the answers, letting them know what he's about to do. So, In chapter 7, I told you we're going to go through this fast, okay? Nebuchadnezzar has repented, and he recognizes God as the true God, all right? He is humble now before the Lord. We find ourselves now, chapter 7, this is during the reign of his grandson, Belshazzar, all right? And there are the... Four beasts that come up in the vision, and basically, it's Babylon the lion, the bear, the Medo Persian Empire, and Greece is the leopard, and Rome is the crazy looking beast. And all there is, there's the mention of the Antichrist as the little horn that rises up later on. Okay, we won't go into it. Uh, but that's who it's speaking of. And then in verse 9, it talks about the Ancient of Days and one like the Son of Man receiving the kingdom, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will endure forever. It's basically the same vision that Nebuchadnezzar received in a different flavor, okay? But it's talking about those empires and the rise and fall of them. In chapter 9... We find ourselves now during the reign of Darius the Mede, okay? And in this particular time, and this is where we're really going to focus, okay? Is how God's dealing with these nations and these kings. So he's laid out the plan that he is God, he is sovereign, and he's in control of everything. So Daniel is in the Word, and he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. Now, if you remember, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel were all contemporaries with, you know, Jeremiah was first, but then Ezekiel and Daniel, they were also alive when Jeremiah was. And so Jeremiah prophesied that the time that they would be in Babylon was 70 years. Daniel was in the first uh, group that went into captivity. So he's going, wait a minute. All right, what's going on here? We're coming up to 70 years. It's time for this to be done. So he turns his heart to pray and seek the Lord. This is something we're going to see a lot where the Word of God and prayer are together. I was reading Spurgeon uh, made a comment, and so did um, F.B. Meyer, where if you don't understand the Word when you're in your quiet time with the Lord, or if you're studying to teach the Word of God, one of the best things you can do and you need to do is to pray. Let God teach you. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, all right? And so that's what we see Daniel doing. He's like, okay, 70 years are coming up. I don't understand what's going on. I'd like to know. I'm going to talk to the Lord about it. So he does. And God gives him, through Gabriel, the 70 weeks, all right? We're not going to break those down, all right? But I want to say this. Gabriel makes it very clear that the 70-week time period is going to begin when the decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem, all right? And we need to keep these things in, in uh, perspective because in the book of Ezra and here, there's talk of the building of Jerusalem and the building of the temple. And a lot of people don't pay attention to what they're reading and they mix the two and that leads to confusion, all right? So, when the decree is made to rebuild Jerusalem, 69 years out from there, Messiah will come. So, King Artaxerxes was the one who made the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, okay? He sent Nehemiah to do that. So, from that date, and I won't get into calculations and all of that, but from that date, To the end of the 69 years was the day of the triumphal entry when Jesus entered Jerusalem as Messiah, okay? So if you ever want to see it broken down or whatever, uh, Josh McDowell has a, I think it might still be in print, but it's um, uh, a ready defense, okay? It's an old book, but it's packed full of stuff, and it's a really great, fast resource, And it's got the calculations laid down in it. But it's when Jesus comes in the triumphal entry. And then it speaks of a 70th week that will come later. And that's the time of the tribulation. The passages that we'll be going through speak of that time considerably. All right. So this is the time of the Antichrist, the time where there's the three and a half years of peace. And then the Antichrist shuts down worship, puts himself up as God in the temple, and he unleashes his wrath upon the people of God, the Jews, all right? So he's praying about this 70 years, what's going to happen. God gives him 70 weeks that are going to carry all the way out through the coming of Messiah and then the Great Tribulation. In chapter 10... And Daniel has another vision, and it scares him. And what's important with this, we see prayer again, okay? Chapter 10, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and his legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude." And so he panics, not panics, but it overwhelms him. Verse 10, the angel reaches out and touches him, strengthens him. And look at what he says in verse 12. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel. From the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. So as soon as he prayed 21 days before, his prayer was heard, and the answer was sent. Okay. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And then he goes on to tell Daniel, he's going to give him the vision, but... do you notice that there is a spiritual battle going on? Okay. Daniel gets a vision. He's trying to understand it. It's overwhelming him. He's seeking the Lord. So the word of God mixed with prayer. The answer is sent from the beginning, but there is a spiritual battle going on where the, basically demons are trying to keep the answer from getting to Daniel. All right. now, In the book of Ephesians chapter six, it talks about how we need to put on the whole armor of God because we don't fight against flesh and blood, but the princes and principalities and rulers of this present darkness and the rulers of this age. And then Paul goes on and says, therefore put on the whole armor of God. I think we forget when we look at the things that are going on in the world around us, that there are spiritual things going on on top of that. All of the persecution, the goings on between nations, the immorality, all of that, at the very core, there is an enemy His name is Satan. He is the ruler of this earth. And those who do not know the Lord are under his rule. And his minions are bent on basically doing as much damage as they possibly can. So often we can look at people, all right, who are in sin, doing stuff, Uh, persecuting us or whatever and we fail to realize that there's something bigger going on behind the scenes. This is a spiritual battle and from the very beginning of time Satan has tried to ruin the plans and the purposes of God and we will see that going on throughout scripture and until he is finally thrown into the lake of fire. He tried to stop (coughs) Jesus right when he was born, right? Herod issued a decree, kill all the children that are, you know, two years old and younger. He's always trying to destroy because he's the one who steals, kills, and destroys. So when you see things going on, maybe you're getting persecuted for your faith. Realize there's a bigger thing going on, and it's not just the person. I'm not saying the person is not responsible, but there's something bigger. One of the best things we can do for our leaders and the people around us is to heed the words of Scripture and pray for all people, for our leaders, for those around us. Because if the Lord will be able to save them, if they will turn and repent, can you imagine what a change that would make in our government? How do you think things were in Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself before God? Probably pretty good, you know. Probably pretty good. Because he feared God. He respected the Lord. And he realized he wasn't the be-all and end-all of kings. There was a greater king than himself. So keep those things in mind, and we're going to see the spiritual battle continue on as we go through this. Then in chapter 11, this is the breakdown of what's going to happen after the Greek empire collapses. In a nutshell, Alexander dies. And the empire is split between four of his commanders, all right? And we won't go into it, but this is one of the places in Scripture who people who don't like Scripture have a really hard time with because the details are so specific, the events are so specific, the people are so specific, those who do not adhere to the Word of God say the book of Daniel was written after these events happened. And though no names are given, the people, where they're from, and the things they do, all you have to do is look in history and go, that's that, that's that, that's that, that's that. Okay? So God is being very specific as to how the Greek empire would pan out. All right? He brings up Antiochus Epiphanes. He was basically called the madman by the Jews. He was one of the latter kings of that empire, or or of the Greeks. And he put up a statue of Zeus in the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar to desecrate it. And he basically just, he treated the people of God horribly, all right? In contrast, Alexander did not. And this is a little historical side note. Um, One of those things that's not in the Bible, but it's in history. So when Alexander was marching on Jerusalem, the high priest in Jerusalem was praying. And the people were scared. And God told the high priest at that time, to have the priests put on their white robes, go out in their holy garments, and the high priest to go out in his priestly garments and go out to the army that was coming and bless the leader. Okay? That sounds kind of weird. But he did it. And as Alexander's army approached, Alexander stopped, got off his horse, And this is according to the historian Josephus, okay? He got off, went up to the high priest and gave him honor and paid respect to him and then went back and commanded his army to keep on going and to leave Jerusalem alone. His commanders were like, why are you doing this? When we went into the other capitals, we sacked them, we destroyed them. But you didn't do that here. And you have not given any respect to any king. Why are you giving respect to this guy? What's going on? This is not your normal way of doing things, Alexander. And Alexander's response was, a while before, he had a vision. And there was a group that came out of a city, dressed in white. And one was dressed like the high priest. Okay, And they were going to bless him. And Alexander said, Up until this time, we haven't come across anybody like this. This is the city, and these are the people that I had the vision about. So I bring that up because, again, even though we don't see it here in Scripture, God was speaking to a pagan king, all right, an emperor, Alexander the Great, and to the high priest. God's still moving. And I think sometimes we forget that God is moving around us. It may not be in the Bible, okay, but that doesn't mean he isn't moving. That doesn't mean he's not doing things. He's always working. So be encouraged. We may not understand everything that's going on around us, but God does, and God is on the move. All right? So... One last thing to bring up is that in chapter eleven and also in chapter twelve, the abomination of desolations is brought up. Okay, now some people say that's what um, Antiochus Epiphanes did when he desecrated the temple. It's not, and the reason for that is because Jesus mentions in Matthew that when you see the abominations. Of abomination of desolations that Daniel spoke about, you need to run. You need to get out of Jerusalem, okay? So Jesus was saying that it was a time to come in the future, and this is going to happen when the Antichrist will break his covenant in that 70th week and set up his image in the temple, and then he goes on the hunt for the Jews. He begins to try to wipe them out. Okay, so just a note there that when Jesus is talking about the abomination of desolations, he's speaking of what Daniel's talking about here. And I want us to finish up with this in the book of Daniel. Okay, chapter 12, the first four verses. And this is speaking of the last days, that time of the tribulation. At that time shall arise Michael the great prince who has charge of your people. He's the archangel over Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, And some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. This is one of those places in the Old Testament where it's talking about the resurrection of the dead. Some to eternal life, some to eternal judgment. And what Daniel is given here, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. When the world is dark, the light shines brighter. Okay? And our responsibility as Christians is to let the Lord shine through us, to live our lives like a Daniel, okay? And a lot of times people put the guilt trip, you know, hey, you need to be witnessing more, you need to get out there and do this more, you need to do that more, blah, blah, blah. And the reality is, I believe that if we just live a life that is yielded to the Lord, yielded to the Holy Spirit, seeking to do his will and not compromising his word and our walk with him, we will shine. And the opportunities will arise where we can bring the gospel of Christ into people's lives. Okay? And I'm not saying we don't need to evangelize. We don't need to go and witness and stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. We're told to. But I think sometimes there's a lot of pressure that you need to be an evangelist, getting out there, going on the street and stuff. Not everybody can do that, all right? There is a gift of evangelism. But we all need to be evangelists in the sense of letting Christ live through us so that we may proclaim him to this dark and dying world, okay? Daniel wasn't out there going... You know, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to be doing this. Darius, you need to be doing this. Cyrus, you need to be doing this. God was moving. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were faithful and the doors were open to work on the hearts of people. Okay. So that's from Nebuchadnezzar's time through Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, go over to the book of Ezra and we go into where we see the prophecy being fulfilled, okay? So Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, the Babylonian Empire, it's done. The Medo-Persian Empire has risen. Cyrus, the king of Persia, is on the throne. And it says in Ezra chapter 1, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Hmm, you think he's got a clue as to who's in charge? Yeah, he does. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, this isn't the city. This is the house of the Lord. The God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Okay? So, Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, Cyrus is first mentioned. Okay? God is calling him his servant 150 years before he takes the throne. He's not even alive yet. But God is appointing him just as he appointed Nebuchadnezzar. Again, he's letting the world know that he, God, is the king of kings and lord of lords. And Cyrus, some people believe that that Daniel uh, that Daniel showed Cyrus a copy of Isaiah going, Hey, dude, you know, look at this. You weren't even born yet and God's got a plan for your life, you know. Now, do we know that for sure? No. But it's a possibility he had Jeremiah's prophecies. So here we are, 70 years from Jeremiah's, uh, for the first captivity going in, as Jeremiah said, now Cyrus is saying, okay, anybody who wants to go back and rebuild the temple, go for it. What I think is so cool is, do you notice how Cyrus makes a decree For anybody who wants to go back, the people who are in that area, give them silver and gold and things for the temple, help them along their journey, help them resettle. Does that sound familiar? Like when they left Egypt? Remember how God had the Egyptians finance their move to the promised land? Now God is having Cyrus have the people finance the move back to the promised land. God is so cool the way he does things. He's providing for his people to do his work, his plans. And Cyrus's heart, his motivation behind these things, yes, it was the Lord. When you look at the perspective outside the scripture, Cyrus had a different leadership mindset. He thought it would be better for people to be in their own countries serving their own gods, and if they're happy, then they're loyal and everybody in the Persian kingdom is happy. So that's his motivation. Nebuchadnezzar was totally eradicate any heritage, any ties, any anything, and obliterate the nation's identity. Cyrus has the opposite. And he actually, it's found on the Cyrus cylinder, okay? It's a, it's a little cylinder, and a decree is on it that was rolled out over clay and then hardened. And that decree was for all the nations that were under the, ba- or the Persian Empire. They could go back to their lands, and they could set up their, their temples to their gods again, because Cyrus, and we'll see this with Darius as well, wanted to make sure that they were making all the gods happy. All right, So Cyrus wasn't exclusive in his heart toward the things of the God of Israel. But he was still being used by God to bring about God's plans. Okay, So God is moving and he sends them back. Ezra, Zechariah, Joshua... And the first exiles returning. In chapter 3, the first thing that they do when they get there is they rebuild the altar. It is the Feast of Tabernacles. If you remember what that was, the Feast of Tabernacles was the memorial of God being in the midst of his people. Okay, Now remember how the the magician said to Nebuchadnezzar, the gods don't dwell with man. Well, when you had the tabernacle and you had the glory of God, the fire and the cloud by day, what you had was God showing his presence amongst his people. And so the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated that. God amongst his people, protecting his people, providing for his people. So that's what they're focusing on in this time of worship, and they're offering the sacrifices of consecration and commitment to the Lord. Okay, so if we're going to do things for the Lord, be a part of what he's doing, just like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like them here, we need to be committed to the Lord. We need to be in right relationship with the Lord. So they begin everything by the sacrifices and then they start to rebuild the temple they begin with the foundation and once they get the foundation laid there's a celebration okay chapter 3 verse 10 and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the lord the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the levites the son of asaph "...with the symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever." This sounds really familiar. "...and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses... Old men who had, been, who had seen the first house, that's Solomon's temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. You have a mixed situation going on here. God is moving. Prophecy is being fulfilled. They're back in Israel. They are rebuilding the temple. And there's a group who are rejoicing. And the sound is so loud. It's like, it makes me think of, um, I was in Chicago years and years ago. And I did not go to the ball game, but I was staying about a block away from, I think it's Wrigley Field, right? Is that in Chicago? Okay, good. I'm not big on baseball, but yeah, it's Wrigley Field. And I was in the house that we were staying at, and I hear this loud, loud commotion. And I went outside, and I could hear the cheers and the excitement and the thrills going like on a block or so away in a stadium. And I'm like, wow, that's incredible. It made me think of this. Here people are so excited for this ball game that you could hear the thunderous joy and applause and yells and shouts a long distance away. You heard it when the temple foundation was laid Do you hear it much in the church today? And I'm not talking about being emotional, but do we really get excited about the Lord and what God's doing? Amidst all of this that's going on, i have got to make sure our time's good. Amidst all that this is going on, there was a group of people whose weeping was almost as loud, if not as loud, as the shouts of joy. Because they looked at what was going on, they remembered Solomon's temple, and they're like, I miss the old ways. This isn't what the old way was like. This isn't as good as the old way. And whenever God is doing something new, there is always an element within the church who wants to hang on to the past. It's not bad to remember the past. We need to. But they don't want to let go of the past and move on into the new things that the Lord is doing. And so you had this group who were just like, this isn't as good. I don't like this. This isn't comfortable. This isn't what I remember. And they threw a wet blanket on what God was doing. On top of that, those that had settled there, the Samaritans, they came along and said, hey, let us help you build the temple. We worship God just like you do. Zechariah, Ezra, the people, and Haggai were like, no, you don't. God was just an add-on to all the other gods. And because of that, these people tried to stop the building of the temple. Now, if you're reading it on your own, chapter 4 And beginning in verse 6, it shifts to this letter to Artaxerxes and and, uh, it gets confusing, okay? What Ezra's doing is he puts a letter in here that's actually happening 80 years later just to show how far the opposition goes to try to stop the work of God. Remember, this is a spiritual battle, all right? So what happens in verse 6 is a letter was written to Ahasuerus. This is Xerxes, Esther's husband, okay? Queen Esther's king, all right? And his son, Artaxerxes, is the one who will go on to allow the city to be rebuilt and everything. But suffice to say, this is not the temple, all right? This is the city. He's just showing the extent of the opposition and how far out it goes. Then back into uh, verse 24 of chapter 4, there's a statement that goes back to where we left off. Then the work of the house of God, okay, not the city, the house of God, that is in Jerusalem, it stopped and ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what happens now is for 20 years, Israel stops work on the temple. It's hard. There's opposition. And they begin to focus on themselves again rather than the things of God. So God has to stir them up and get them going again through Zechariah and Haggai. So let's go over to the book of Haggai, chapter 1. And this is the command to rebuild the temple. All right? Not Cyrus's. This is... More than a decade later, okay, it's in the second year of Darius the first, not the Mede, but now the Persian. Mm -hmm. Everybody clear on that? There's a whole bunch of different people, all right? But, chapter 1, verse 1, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel. He was the governor of Judah. The son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and I may be glorified, says the Lord. God saying, looking. For almost 20 years now, you have focused on yourself. You've caved into fear. You've caved into opposition. And you've just done your own thing. And you haven't done what I've told you to do. When despair comes in, it's easy for us to shut down. When the people were weeping and saying, this house isn't as good as Solomon's temple, it was putting a wet blanket on things. When the Samaritans were causing disruption, it was putting a wet blanket on things. And God uses the prophets again to come and stir them up. But they had just pushed the things of God to the side. So they obey. God begins to move and encourage them. And in chapter 2, verse 3, God addresses those who were complaining about the temple. Who is left among you who says of the saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel! Declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you peoples of the Lord, uh, of the land! Declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you! Declares the Lord of hosts. Verse seven. And I will shake the nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You think he's trying to get a point across, saying that he's the Lord of hosts over and over and over again? I am the one who controls the armies of heaven. I am the great commander. I am the great king. They were complaining about it not being as good as Solomon's temple. God says, the silver and gold are mine. I can do whatever I want. I can put as much gold or silver into this temple as I want to. But the glory of this temple will be greater than the former. Why would that be? Because this is the temple the Messiah would come to. God incarnate would come to this temple. Now, Herod did a lot of work on the premises and everything, okay, but it's still the second temple. And so I bring this up because we have a tendency to look at something And it's not what we expect, not what we want, and we don't give it the credit that it deserves. They had that view with the temple. God was going to have greater glory with this temple. When the Jews looked at Jesus, he was from a poor family, born in a stable, put in a feed trough. And when you looked at him, he did not look like the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They were looking for somebody else. And they despised and rejected Messiah. In the book of Zechariah, God says, don't despise the years of small beginnings, small things. God does great things. We just may not see it yet, okay? Don't despise what God's doing. They despise the disciples, (laughs) Who are these unlearned men? God moved through them. Okay? And then we'll finish up with Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 2. Same time here. This is just two months out from Haggai's prophecies. Sing and rejoice. This is chapter 2, verse 10. O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Daniel, they were saying, he doesn't. He's making it clear he does. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Chapter 3. A beautiful picture of God, Jesus really, interceding on behalf of Israel. Joshua is being accused by Satan. He's unclean, he's unholy, he's no good, he's failed. He's a representative of the nation of Israel. So basically, Satan is condemning Israel for their sin. The Lord says, clean them up, put a robe on them, a crown, a turban... And he re-solidifies the covenant that he made with his people, Israel. Okay? Again, there is a spiritual battle. When we try to do the things of God or live for the Lord, we've all been in a place where Satan points his accusatory finger at us saying, you're no good, you're a sinner, you failed, you screwed up, you are messed up, do you think God really loves you, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus Christ and our intercessor is right there going, I paid for it on the cross. Okay? So, remember, this is a spiritual battle. Chapter 4, verse 6 is where I want us to end. Zerubbabel is discouraged. The people have given up. Things have been in ruin for 20 years almost. Okay? They've lost steam. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Everything that transpires and what we've looked at has been because of the Holy Spirit, the hand of God moving in the world and in people's lives, raising up kings and kingdoms, bringing them down. Okay. Anything that the Lord would have for us, the way we live for him, the way we walk with him, the way we serve him, keep Zechariah 4, 6 in mind. This is what Daniel said. It's not me. I'm not doing this. This is God who is doing this. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The disciples were told to wait in Jerusalem until they received the Spirit before they went out to begin to do the work of God. Remember, it's not your strength, your ability. What the Lord wants is a yielded heart that he can work through. That's it. He'll take care of the details. We see that here. He'll give you the power. We see that here. He'll give you the direction. We see that here. Trust in him, okay? Whatever's going on in this world around us, how crazy it is, he's the one who will work in you, work with you, work for you to bring about his plans for your life and use you in the lives of others, okay? God's on the throne.